Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined by Spike's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up, we're joined by Spike Columnist Tim Black to talk about the betrayal of the Kurds and we'll also discuss the latest in Brexit and Extinction Rebellion. Turkey's president has announced his invasion of northern Syria has begun as Kurdish forces move to defend the border. Turkey calls the Kurds terrorists. They fought with us. They died with us. But they're great people. The U.S.-backed Syrian Kurds have lost thousands of soldiers in that fight. Are you concerned that Erdogan will try to wipe out the Kurds? They didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy as an example. On Wednesday, Turkey began its assault on the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurdish militia which has helped the West to defeat ISIS. Turkey's incursion into northeast Syria was effectively given the green light by Donald Trump when he announced the withdrawal of US troops from the region. Not for the first time, the West has abandoned and betrayed the Kurds. Spiked columnist Tim Black is joining us down the line for this section. Tim, um, could you tell us a bit about how we got here? Well, this in some ways um, is the product, if you like, of the uns- this unsustainable contradiction in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy approach to Syria. Um, and in some ways, we were always going to end up here from the very moment uh, the U.S. started backing uh, the Kurds in Syria, uh, encouraging them and emboldening them in their battle and fight with ISIS. Because, of course, as everyone knows, the Syrian Kurds are seen by Turkey as being affiliated or allied with uh, the PKK, which is seen as a terrorist organisation by the Turks, by the Turkish state, rather. Uh, So we were always going to come to a a juncture, if you like, where the US was going to be confronted by its NATO ally wanting to roll back the Kurds in uh, Syria, and the Kurds expecting to be supported by the very people that they'd been allied with, i.e. the US, Um, So we were always going to end up at this point. I think what's taken everyone by surprise is just how blithely Trump has made this decision. You know, by all accounts, uh, none of his advisers were aware that Trump was going to uh, discuss the Kurdish situation with President Erdogan on Sunday morning. Um, But he did, and he effectively said, right, uh, Turkey... uh, don't you worry, we're going to move US troops out of the way so there'll be no conflict when you move into uh, northern Syria and start attacking the Kurds. Um, so I think that's taken everyone by surprise. Um, and of course, Trump himself looks like he's desperately trying to cover his own back now because he's obviously copping a lot of flat for this decision because it's, it is morally and politically indefensible. Uh, the US has effectively just abandoned the very people uh, who helped and have sacrificed their own lives to fight ISIS. Yeah, and, and as you say, the, you know, Trump has been trying to you know, justify himself after the fact, um, doing the, all these kind of wild tweets like saying that if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, he says he's going to obliterate the Turkish economy. He's also come out and said things like, we, we had no need to help the Kurds because they weren't there during World War II in um, in Normandy. And we really seem to be seeing the unravelling of um, US foreign policy. Is this really what America first looks like? Tom, have you got any thoughts on this? Well, I think, of course, the way in which Trump has done this, as you've just talked about, and the way that Tim has just talked about, was incredibly striking, not just because of how 
you know, ridiculous it was at times. Again, referring referring to his unmatched wisdom, you know, all of these ridiculous flourishes, incredibly undiplomatic stuff, you know, not just in relation to the Kurds, but also when the question was raised about, you know, there are thousands of ISIS fighters being held in pretty ramshackle prisons by the Kurds in Syria. What about them? And he just said, oh, well, they're going to escape to Europe if they're going to escape to anywhere. It's an absolutely incredible thing to say. And of course, given how much people dislike Trump. Um, this is fueling a lot of the condemnation. I think it's, it's always worth remembering, of course, that the West betraying the Kurds um, is nothing new. You know, as Tim lays out in his article this week, you know, it happened in the 1920s when Britain and France looked the other way when Ataturk put down the Kurds. You also had it in the 1980s when um, the West, again, just turned a blind eye as Saddam Hussein massacred Kurds in Iraq. And it's happening again now. But there is something particularly depraved, particularly unhinged, um, incredibly callous in a way that Trump is doing it, which I think does reveal a lot about his programme and his character. I mean, not only do we owe a huge debt to the Kurds insofar as their bravery and force of will and strength in terms of rolling back ISIS, you know, they lost something like 11,000 people in the process of actually putting down that horrendous death cult and, and beating back their territory. But as well, on top of that, you've also got the way in which the kind of society that Syrian Kurds were carving out in that part of the world. A really remarkable kind of democratic, egalitarian, feminist, as they would put it, experiment um, in a part of the world which has been claiming increasingly none of those things. And so not only is this a horrendous and completely depraved and morally indefensible betrayal of a key ally who has shown tremendous bravery. I think it's also potentially looking at like the beating back and extinguishing of a really fascinating radical kind of democratic experiment in an otherwise quite dark part of the world. So the scale of this, I think, is something that really can't escape us. Ella? Um, Yeah, well, just listening and watching Trump's press and the things that he's been tweeting out, um, there's sort of two things that strike me. The first is this quite revealing comment that he made, which said when he said that Erdogan should conduct this offensive in as hu- a humane way as possible. If you look at, for example, look at Mesa Gifford, a guy who we've interviewed on Spike before, an anti-ISIS fighter's uh, Twitter account, and he's been posting really awful videos of just how inhumane those attacks have been um, on the Kurds. But in any case, as if there was an in- a humane way to do what Turkey is currently doing. Uh, and it marks out this sort of lie at the heart of a lot of what Trump says, that he kind of distances himself from people like Clinton and others by saying, you know, we want to get out of the Middle East, we're not like that. And then we saw it before with the airstrikes and now with this kind of tacit or under underlying support, really, for what Turkey's doing. And the other time is when he said they didn't help us in Normandy, referring to the Kurds, which is just this... It's the kind of bizarre comment, but also it's really revealing for the level of solidarity here and a reminder that America and big Western powers will only side with people like the Kurds when it benefits them. Uh, And at the moment, there's nothing really in it for America to side with the Kurds against Turkey, not least because of the relationship with Turkey, but also because they've, as far as, seemingly as far as Trump sees it, they've done what they were supposed to do, which is beat ISIS, and now they can go to hell. Um, So that is really quite alarming. And going back to someone like Mesa Gifford, who has for a long time argued for uh, Western intervention in a certain way into the Middle East, certainly into Syria, for he's argued for um, coalition support for the Kurds. And while we might criticise that 
position in the past. I think this abrupt removal of troops and this essentially deserting of the Kurds when they're faced with both a danger from, a significant still danger from ISIS fighters and also now Turkey Mm. kind of beating them into the ground is really morally corrupt. Tim, your thoughts? You know, without trying to get into Trump's head, because to be honest, no one really wants to be there. Um, But he sees Syria as you know, his predecessors mess, I think, as much as anything else. So his rationale is simply, you know, this isn't the US's problem. You know, we have a token number of troops there. It is no real skin of our nose to move them out of the way so we don't come to conflict as they roll their tanks in. Um, and he could probably justify it in terms of, as Fraser said right at the start, you know, America, America first. Um, but I think what what he doesn't understand or, or, or what... Um, exposes the logic of that position. Trump could say, I, you know, I am against intervention, interventionism and so on, is that he has not not intervened. He has intervened effectively by acting in the interests of Turkey and, as Ella suggested, acting in the, in the, in the US's interests in relation to Turkey. Trump himself has tried to justify the decision by, you know, talking about uh, the economic relationship with Turkey and how important that is. You know, what, what a great, you know, to use Trump's favourite word, what a great uh, uh, trading partner Turkey is. So he, they ha- he has intervened effectively by acting in this way, by removing those troops. That is an, that is an interventionist act. Um, so they, the US, in fact, remains as embroiled, which, to be fair, isn't, isn't, the Trump administration's mess, it's the, the mess of, of, of the Obama administration's mess and anything else. But they still remain there for as long as Turkey are bombing and uh, pushing, uh, as, as Tom said, uh, the Kurds out of what, what, you know, what is a remarkable democratic experiment in the, in the Rojava region. So Tim, what, what now for the Kurds? The Kurds are in a, well, obviously incredibly difficult, perilous situation, uh, at the moment, from the news, we're hearing Kurdish civilians are leaving um, the towns and cities in that corridor which um, uh, Turkey is promising to clear out. Um, there has been a suggestion that the Kurds can look to Assad for uh, support. But, you know, Assad historically, um, and certainly for as long as he, up until 2011, was pretty close to Turkey, has always treated the Kurds with disdain, seeing them as uh, second lower class uh, citizens. So there isn't much refuge to be sought from Assad, uh, one would have thought. Uh, there is the question of Russia as well, of course, because Russia, along with uh, Turkey, is the other military power that, that has obviously been intervening in the region. So th- th- there are possible sources of external help. But I think above all, the Kurds need to find a way, the Syrian Kurds particularly, need to find a way to not have to rely on external help, external actors uh, for their survival and future. Because as we have written on Spite and as history tells us, those external actors, uh, they continually let them down. And the only way I can see the Kurds being able to uh, free themselves to an extent from that reliance is if they can establish some legally enshrined uh, regional autonomy somewhere in in northern Syria. It's very difficult to see that happening at the moment. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show.
It's been another huge week for Brexit, with a great deal of theatrics in Britain, Brussels and Dublin. We're recording this just as the EU27 has given the green light to accelerate negotiations before the EU Council Summit next week, which could be the final chance to broker a Brexit deal before the current leaving date of October the 31st. Tom, um, where would you say we're at at the moment? Well, it's still quite unclear. Now, we've had a very significant moment today with the European Union giving the green light for deeper negotiations with the UK. Um, there's some speculation as to whether or not this will be the so-called tunnel, the really secretive kind of, you know, potentially kind of end game negotiations on mm. certain issues. Um, people are still being a little bit unclear as to what it will constitute, but it definitely marks some kind of shift um, following the talks between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson in Cheshire yesterday, where um, apparently they came to some sort of understanding that laid the pathway for some sort of agreement. So it's all very euphemistic at this point. Mm. Now, if you look at the Irish press, it seems like they were they were briefed last night that the UK had moved significantly on the issue of customs. Again, that was one of the great kind of intractable divides was whether or not essentially Northern Ireland should be kept in the customs union um, as a consequence of Brexit, um, that being a very big red line for the UK side. But again, we're really none the wiser as to what these talks might constitute if there's been some sort of technical fix to square that circle or if it's actually a more meaningful concession. All of this is really unclear. It's also quite unclear going into this, um, you know, and all of this, there's a lot of ifs attached to this, what kind of agreement we could result with out the other end, as we've, you know, routinely said on this podcast, the backstop is only one of many issues with the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. There's been some noise from number 10 that they were actually trying to fight back against other aspects of the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration, things like state aid rules. But again, we really don't know. Mm. Um, that is the nature of these negotiations. At this point, um, there's an open question as to whether or not this is, again, just part of um, the basically posturing, both sides trying to look really reasonable, both sides trying to look like they want to deal. Um, but as is so often the case when you're dealing with the European Union and these <laughs> ne sorts of negotiations, uh, the public have kept very much behind the closed door. So who knows what will happen? Well, yeah, just thinking about the posturing, it's interesting to see, you know, what has changed. I mean, just this week, it's gone from, you know, basically the European Parliament saying a deal would be impossible. We've had we've seen um, Varadkar's tune change from... Um, you know, saying that this doesn't meet our objectives to um, being a lot warmer and saying we can see the pathway to a deal. But the, the statement that worried me most, you know, coming out of these most recent, this most recent development was from Donald Tusk, who said that he thinks that it, it's a deal that could satisfy everyone. And, you know, where have we heard that idea before? It's um, Mrs. May's deal, the one to satisfy hardcore leavers and remainers in the European Union. So that itself doesn't um, <laughs> bode too well, I think. Um, but Ella, any, any thoughts, anything you want to say? Well, it's interesting watching Leo Varadkar posture, as you say. I mean, I can say this because I'm Irish, but it's, it's remarkable um, how much the Irish Taoiseach is enjoying being centre stage even given the fact that Ireland itself, you know, in the grand scheme of things, has always been relatively poxy when it comes to European politics. And now it's at the centre of this giant question of the European Union. And it's sort of, it, it's the main political football that's being kicked around. So it's interesting to watch him really enjoy that coming out smirking. And I think it tells you a lot about um, their intentions in this debate is not to kind of play fair, but actually to use the stage to... Uh, really accelerate their importance. However, I think that while it's interesting that there has been some suggestion to move towards 
a deal or tunnel talks, you kind of have to take a step back and remember what's actually happening here. Um, even the very simple fact of the idea that they're going into tunnel talks, which is you know, highly secret, confidential, closed door discussions about the deal. Um, when all of us, even the media at this point, are kind of in the dark about what's happening. This this tone of secrecy, this kind of behind closed doors negotiations is sort of exactly what people were voting against when we voted for Brexit. So it's kind of revealing that all of this is wound back to the same old style of politics, which is not involving the public doing things in a kind of closed door, old handshakes, wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of a way. So I think that's negative. And you also have to see what's going on and reflect on what's going on back at home because the matter how uh, dramatic and intense discussions in Europe are, there's also a huge amount going on behind the scenes. So we've got this supposed Super Saturday coming up on the 19th of October where parliamentarians are going to test the idea of a second referendum, see how much support there is for it in the House. So, it, you know, <laughs> we can chat about how close a deal is. We can speculate on... Boris Johnson's relationship with Varadkar, but when it comes down to it, when it comes back to Westminster, it's very unlikely politicians are going to support Boris Johnson in this deal. Mm. And it's it's interesting again, as as Ella was saying, looking at the kind of the domestic angle, the domestic and the EU angle, kind of together, and it really just does remind you how much the public and the kind of democratic will is locked out of this entire process. You know, we've got mm. we've come to a position in which the EU have been saying for a long time, notwithstanding you know the outcome of these talks, who knows what will happen, that we effectively can't leave and have a meaningful Brexit. Um, that you know, at least part of the territory has to be kind of hived off in some way, shape, or form. Um, that's that's something which has almost become a red line for them in this process. Um, you've got a parliament which has legislated against no deal, which for a long time has been our you know last remaining kind of clean path to a clean Brexit. Um, you've also got a um, parliament which is increasingly emboldened and not only have they constantly refused to allow for a general election which mm. would allow the public to have some sort of input on this you know all of this talk about you know there's no mandate for no deal they could have had a general election before the deadline which could have effectively allowed the public some impact on this but of course they didn't want that yeah um and now you're, it's really interesting this week again seeing um discussion at the top of the labor party as well we're not just talking about a few crazy lib dems or whatever about having a second referendum which we all know would be on stitch up terms before a general election yeah which would of course mean not only um you know a pretty explicit attempt to completely overturn brexit given the fact that they would fiddle with the franchise they would basically make it a soft brexit versus remain so not only have you got that but you've also got the fact that this incredibly dysfunctional government which is you know complete which is completely kind of lacking in legitimacy just on a day-to-day level mm. would be kept in place for you know potentially into you know closer to next summer in yeah. order for this allowed to happen so it just feels like in so many different ways you know on so many different levels it's just demonstrating how much the public is kind of locked out of this process how much any attempt for either our decision in 2016 to be implemented or for us to have any meager kind of impact on what's happening now has just been closed off at all kinds of levels and it's just been a perfect reminder again of how you know the question of brexit and the question of democracy in this country the eu is you know almost less than half the problem it's as much about the people we've got to contend with here as well yeah, and of course, the alternative to, um, to propping up Boris Johnson is this: um, what has been extremely dishonestly dubbed a government of national unity. So this is the idea that 
Parliament could vote no confidence in Boris, but replace him with someone from a, either from a different party or basically a government that would have no legitimacy in the eyes of, of the electorate and whose only goal would be to overturn the vote for Brexit. And because, you know, there are various rules around holding referendums, there has to be, you know, a question has to be decided, has to be approved by the Electoral Commission. It takes a long time. We we are, we, we would be seeing a kind of caretaker, unelected government in power for like quite a significant amount of, of time. It's interesting, as you, you're alluding to, you know, the, la- the tension in Labour is quite interesting. You know, we, we started off um, in 2017 with the Labour Party saying it was going to uh, respect Brexit. And obviously there were a few grumbles about that from some of the Remainer members. But now we've moved to a position where the only argument about Brexit is, within the Labour Party is whether to hold a second referendum before or after a general election. The really interesting thing about Labour, it's quite remarkable what they're doing and how open they are about what they're doing because they're saying we are so terrified of a uh, public vote in the form of a general election or even really also of a second referendum that we have to, they've been so open about the fact that they have to manoeuvre the situation and the scenery for that event to take place. So it can't happen before we block no deal because we're so terrified that the public will vote for a no deal and in favour of Brexit. We can't have a second referendum in this kind of situation because we're all with with no deal on the ballot because we're afraid that people might go for that. So they are time and again repeating openly their own fears and shortcomings in this kind of bizarre way. And no one seems to be picking up on it, on the fact that they're essentially cheating the electorate. This is what is happening to us because we are being openly told by our political leaders that they will not let us have a say unless they set the scene for it in a way that will benefit them. I mean, that is the scandal at the heart of all of this. And you really don't have to be a card-carrying Conservative Party member, Boris Johnson cheerleader, to know that when you think about things in terms of political principle, it is Boris Johnson at the end of the day who is standing up for the principle of democracy in his, you know, wavering but still more strong than anyone else support for Brexit. And the rest of them, I think, should be ashamed. I mean, we've definitely got kind of poor choices in all of this. Um, And I think it's fascinating that, you know, it's just this very small, you know, minus 40 majority Conservative government, which is this last, you know, desperate holdout we have almost for something resembling Brexit. And I think, you know, there's going to be so much, there's going to be so much news flying around in the coming days. There's going to be so much speculation as to what's actually happening in Brussels. And as ever, it's just important to remember the bigger picture, which is at the end of this process, we really could end up with a far less democratic society than we went into the 2016 referendum with, or at least a a society that is far less democratic than we realise. Members of the European Union, but allegedly you're allowed to leave. That seems to be something which is actually, you know, not necessarily true. Um, You know, we might not have referendums very often, but it's very well established that when we do have them, they're supposed to be respected, and yet it's been made very, very clear that at best they'll try and water down the decision. At worst, they'll try and overturn it entirely. For all the talk about the unconstitutional behaviour of Boris Johnson and Number 10, the kind of incredibly unusual wheezes and schemes that the backbenchers um, in tandem with John Burko came up with in order to force through all kinds of anti-Brexit measures and legislation demonstrates that that's incredibly shaky as well. So I think, you know, you know, we wait to see what comes of this negotiation. We wait to see what the next stage is. Will a general election provide some clarity? You know, who's going to come out on that on top? All of that remains unclear. But the stakes of this really cannot 
be higher, we could really end up, as I say, with a democracy in the society, which has really proved itself through this process to be completely hollow. And that's looking a start now as it has throughout this process. Hi, it's Ella Whelan here. I'd just like to take a break from the show to say thank you for everyone who's been giving us donations. Your generosity really means a lot and it goes a long way to help Spiked keep going and growing. So to those of you who already give, thanks. And if you're thinking about donating, that's really brilliant. One-offs can go a long way, but what really helps is if you think about giving monthly. Even £5 a month can really help. It's really easy to do. You just head to spiked-online.com, click on the big red donate button and fill in your details. So thanks again. And now let's get back to the show. Extinction Rebellion has taken over central London for two weeks of protests and occupations to draw attention to what activists call the climate emergency. The environmental groups say that mankind faces extinction if we don't transition to a carbon neutral economy in just six years. I mean, Ella, have you um, been won over by the protesters this week? <laughs> Not quite. In fact, actually, I was uh, I had to be evacuated off a tube today um, for something that wasn't in relation to Extinction Rebellion. But everyone on the tube was talking to each other while we sat there in the dark saying, I bet this is Extinction Rebellion. I tell you, <laughs> people on the tube didn't have a lot of nice things to say about them. So even in the heart of London on the Jubilee line, where you think they might have garnered some support, they didn't. Um, I think... The funny thing about this time round, because we've had hijinks from Extinction Rebellion a number of times now, is that one, it's much more serious, and two, there's been it's much more obvious how much of a blind eye the police and politicians are paying to it. Because previously we did have some debate about, you know, should they be allowed to do these protests? Is it legal? Is it right? They're stopping ambulances, for example, getting uh, to save people. Now there just kind of seems to be this very uh, quiet consent to it uh, in terms of you've got them shutting down bridges, doing yoga and everyone's sort of jollily tweeting about it. Um, just as we speak now that today, one of them is, I think, glued themselves to the top of a BA airplane at London City Airport and shut that down. Women who are associated with Extinction Rebellion had a nurse in where they all breastfed for the planet. <laughs> I mean, you explained that to me. And no one has really come out strongly and tried to stop them because they are kind of clothed in this blanket of you can't be nasty to them because they're the saviors of the planet. Yeah. And I think we've, you know, it, it's gotten to the point now where if you criticize Extinction Rebellion, you're either a total right winger who wants to, mm. you know, burn coal while you're walking around the streets and or you're a climate change denier and we always knew that it was going to get to this point because they're sort of very fashionable kind of politics this climate alarmism but it's really damaging because essentially what this organization is made up of is to a certain extent what boris johnson said you know crusties hippies yeah. i mean what else do you call people dressed head to toe in red robes doing water ceremonies by the thames yeah who else is free at lunchtime on a wednesday <laughs> yeah. but on the other hand they're also made up of some people with very very reactionary and really quite frightening politics which is to completely change the lives of people in this country i mean essentially what they're arguing for is austerity painted green yeah and that is really alarming I think it's interesting as well, the question about the 
response from the police, the media, politicians, etc. Um, and the kind of, you know, they just want to be kind of stomped by the police at this yeah. point. You know, there's all this talk about, oh, they're dragging us away. They're, they're being treated very nicely at this point, you know. And I think it's just really interesting if you contrast, um, say, the Extinction Rebellion protest to the Gilets Jaunes, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can see which one are against the interests of the establishment and which ones provoke a certain kind of response and which ones don't. Because, you know, Boris Johnson's Crosty's remark aside, which is quite funny, especially when he's... um. Dad said he was a supporter of it and made a joke about it. But the Krusty's remark aside, um, it's quite clear that more or less the political class agree with the sentiment that's being expressed. They might mm. not a- agree with the degree to which, you know, they want to get net zero in six years' time and all the rest of it. There's arguments, should it be 2050 or 2030 or 2025 or whatever? But they appreciate that kind of sentiment, which isn't, you know... I'm, and I think that one that is reflected in the kind of very easy time they've got in the media up until yeah. about last night, you know, because last night one of their spokespeople um, was on the Andrew Neil show, got completely um, obliterated, you know, just by asking the most basic questions. Some of your leaders say that, you know, there's going to be billions of deaths within the next um, five to 10 years. No one says that. Where's the evidence for it? And them just coming apart in front of him, just completely unable to answer the questions. Mm. But up until this point, they've got an, an incredibly sympathetic hearing, which is really quite strange because... As Ella says, when you actually look about what these people want, um, even though they're quite vague most of the time as to how we should get there, it is effectively um, a model of austerity that make George Osborne look like um, an incredibly generous man. It's ridiculous kind of the point at which not only the kind of scientific claims they might have been putting forward, but actually the political trajectory of this movement, how little criticism it has received so far. Yeah, I, I think that has been one of the um, kind of frustrating things about to the extent that there is any debate about Extinction Rebellion. It, it is, you know, in, in the mainstream media. The question is always posed as, but are they going too far? Yeah. Nobody ever asks, but are their aims um, legitimate? And and just quickly on the, on the police thing, it was quite funny to see um, this one faction called Animal Rebellion took over Smithfield Market. Um, basically prevented a load of people from selling meat and, and were selling vegan goods in their in their place. And a lot of them have been camping out there as well. And the police actually took care not to wake up the protesters too early in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> they asked the lorry drivers not to honk their horns. So was like, <laughs> okay. But I think the the question about whether or not they go too far, I mean, there has been some, some of the columns that have been written this week have been interesting because there was one early on, um, on Monday that said, you know, they need to, what they really need to do is win over Middle Britain and all this kind of jumping around to rave music in Trafalgar Square with dreadlocks is just going to turn off your average 54-year-old person in Somerset who really cares about the environment and wants to do something but isn't going to get on board with the crazy train. And I think that slightly misses the point because what Extinction Rebellion is arguing for is not a sensible approach to environmentalism and not a serious one because actually a serious one would say we do need to do something about the effect of our lives on the planet and we need to do it in a way that means that human life can still get better and have a better quality alongside making sure that we still have a planet to live on. I I have yet to meet one person, even the most kind of climate sceptic person who doesn't agree with that to, you know, to some extent that this is something that should be talked about. But the problem with Extinction Rebellion is it's not arguing for a a democratic change in politics. I think this is the crucial thing. It's not arguing for us they keep using us and we. They're not arguing for us as a nation to get better at doing things with the environment or to become greener. What they are arguing for is a very small amount of people pressurising 
the people in power for an authoritarian response. This is not democratic uh, and it's certainly not progressive. So it's not about people disagreeing with their tactics. It's about people being rightly as I am, very concerned with the idea that a small pressure group can mm. exert such gigantic political power as to stop people from driving cars. You know, as was said on that interview, Andrew Neil last night, uh, only allow um, families to fly once every five years to stop people from eating meat on, you know, four days a week. I mean, that sounds like, oh, funny, how ridiculous. It's not funny. It's not funny if you actually try to start enforcing those things, who's going to be enforcing them? So, you know, whether or not they, whether they kind of all give up their uh, multicolored clothes and start kind of saying things sensibly in suits, it's not about their tactics. It's not even about the fact that they're engaging in street theater and being idiots, frankly. It's the message, it's the content of what they're saying, which is dangerous, I think. I think it's interesting as well, the kind of question of, they say that it's not a political movement. Yeah. You know, they claim that they eschew politics entirely and they have, despite the fact that they have demands, which I think is quite an interesting <laughs> thing, but their free demands, one of which being tell the truth, mm. um, which is that Andrew Neil um, interview demonstrates are not particularly good at. Um, the other one being that we need to declare this climate emergency, despite the fact that again, you know, what constitutes a climate emergency. We're certainly not looking at billions of deaths in the next five, 10 years. And then also this idea of this kind of people's, you know, this kind of public assembly, which, whereby, you know, you take a small amount of people, present them load, with a load of expertise, and they'll come up with some way to get towards presumably their predetermined goals. But I think what that really kind of sums up is the fact that um, the green movement, particularly at its most extreme, tries to invoke the science, often in a very kind of inconsistent way. <laughs> as if it ends the argument. Whereas yeah. it doesn't matter, you know, even if there's a 100% scientific consensus on a particular issue, that can tell you what is. It can't, tell, it can't tell you what matters and it can't tell you what we do next. They have a pre-existing agenda, one which, as you see from the quite cultish behaviour of them at some points, you know, in, the, in this bizarre street fit that they engage in, is kind of revulsed by mass human society. They think it's dirty. They think there's too much of it. They think growth is a disgusting thing, even though it's the thing that's liberated so many people from... Um, poverty around the world that's really what's driving it and i think the thing that people really need to pick up on in media discussions or whenever they you know bump into these kinds of activists is the fact that they are trying to further a distinct very regressive sort of neo-feudalist political agenda while claiming it's all just about facts and common sense And i think they really need to be pulled up on that in particular I remember us talking about this in previous podcasts and laughing about the hijinks that Extinction Rebellion get up to and taking the mick out of them as being largely middle class. And I think all of those points are still relatively valid. <laughs> but one thing that I've seen that's different this time around is that there's been, you know, there's been a lot of alarmism, but there's also been lots of people crying. And there was one video that circulated on Facebook of um, a man with two kids lying on the floor crying, clutching the picture of his children, saying that he um, was so entirely terrified. And there has been that kind of, there's been a different air to it where it seems like there are these people involved in this movement who genuinely, genuinely believe that their lives are in danger, that the lives of their children are in danger, despite there being no evidence of it. And that's that's a different turn in this movement that I think people have to be careful about indulging in because when you have people that are so psychologically involved at this point and so to not kind of be unsensitive about it seems unhinged. It then can spiral into something that turns into something emotional rather than political or scientific. I mean, science is one thing, but the, as Tom says, the question about where we go next is a political one. And that has to be kept separate from alarmist emotions of people crying in the street. It has to be done with the cold, hard use of reason. And so for you know anyone listening who cares about the environment and is wondering about Extinction Rebellion, I think what our message would be is that you always have to be careful about these 
semi-cultish, very undemocratic movements who claim to speak on behalf of people or claim to speak on behalf of the science and ask, do these people really care about the environment to the extent to which they're willing to sacrifice their jobs to go out on the street for us? Or is there something else going on here? And I think there's something else going on here is a kind of existential angst that we've got at the moment about lots of things, about Brexit, about culture wars. It's being expressed by this quite bizarre movement, Extinction Rebellion, and everyone's sort of happy to go along with it. I don't think I'm happy to go along with it anymore. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com.